Uh, We will be in Luke chapter 20 this morning, Luke chapter 20. Thank you for the great singing already today. I love that hymn we're learning, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, and hopefully in coming weeks that will become familiar to you. Luke chapter 20. We are a very safety-conscious society. Chances are you came to church today uh, in a car that was equipped with airbags and hopefully with a seatbelt on. And here we come into a church that has been built up to code, and there are inspections that are done so the roof, you know, hopefully doesn't cave in during the, the service today. We have a reasonable expectation that that kind of thing doesn't happen. And there's good reason why we are safety conscious in our world today, right? Uh, there's a lot of things that could bring danger and bring damage to our lives. For example, we deliberately don't drink contaminated water or eat raw bacon because we have learned that those are sort of dangerous things to do, and so we we avoid those things. We rightly avoid danger because we like being healthy and we like staying alive. But think of all the dangers that we sort of go above and beyond to, to guard ourselves against. We have fire extinguishers and smoke detectors and burglar alarms and locks on our doors and airbags in our cars and health care and, you know, preventative maintenance that we sort of take on our bodies to make sure things don't go in a bad direction. We take all of these steps to try to be safe and to try to avoid danger in our lives. And that's a good thing, right? It's, there's, no, there's no merit or virtue in just being foolhardy and running into danger for no good reason. But sometimes I wonder, with all of our concern and focus on our physical safety, if we do not sometimes neglect our spiritual safety, so as we can be so focused on the physical dangers in front of us that we become blind to the great spiritual dangers that exist. Here in Luke chapter 20, Jesus is going to Warn the nation of Israel one final time. We're in the middle of Passion Week. It's Tuesday, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday of the Passion Week. By Thursday night, Jesus will be arrested. By Friday morning, he will be on the cross. Events are moving at a very quick pace. We saw last week Jesus has cleansed the temple. The religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, has officially come to him and confronted him, questioning his authority. It's tantamount to an official rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And Jesus is going to make a final appeal here in this text to the nation, to the leadership of Israel. He's going to call them to reflect on their history and their pattern of rejecting God's word and plead with them to not reject God's son, to not reject the Messiah, to not reject himself. He's offering a warning. He's highlighting the great and profound and eternally detrimental spiritual danger of rejecting Jesus Christ. See, there are a lot of things that we should be concerned about, a lot of safety and dangers and and all those things, but the greatest danger that any of us should consider and worry about is the danger of our own souls, the danger of rejecting Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. You can come to church service week after week. You can grow up in the Bible Belt with hundreds of churches within the Mobile area, and you can hear the gospel, and you can still reject Jesus. My plea to you today is to take stock of your heart to see, is there a dangerous heart of unbelief in departing from the living God? 
And you say, how did the nation of Israel get to the point where they rejected their own Messiah, the one who had been predicted and promised, and he does all the miracles and all of the credentialing that is necessary to prove that he's the Messiah? How do they end up in that place? How do they get to a point where they are ready to reject their own Messiah and crucify him, full well knowing that he is their Messiah? How do you get there? Because I I dare say that none of these Sanhedrin members grew up thinking one day we're going to reject the Messiah. That's not where they started. They got to this point. How do they get there to that point where they're ready to reject him? Well, Jesus in this parable is going to walk through, and it's going to be basically an allegory of Israel's history. There's going to be a vineyard that pictures the nation of Israel. There's going to be some sort of renters who are, are tenant farmers on that vineyard. They represent the leaders of the nation. There's a landowner who represents God, and there's servants who come who represent the prophets who come to Israel calling them to repent, and then there's finally the owner's son who comes to the vineyard to make a final appeal to to them, and they, they kill him, throw him out of the vineyard. It's an allegory of Israel's history. They've rejected God's message through the prophets, and they're going to reject God's message through his son. And Jesus then will say, hey, there's going to be consequences to this action. This will be a dangerous action. Let's go ahead and read the text. Follow along in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse number 9. Then began he to speak a parable, or speak to the people this parable. Okay, so they just had the encounter in the temple where they say, by what authority are you doing these things? They've rejected him. So here's this parable that comes as a final appeal to the nation. A certain man planted, planted a vineyard and led it forth, rented it out to husbandmen, to farmers, to tenant farmers, and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, harvest time, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. Okay, pay their rent in the the fruit of the vineyard, in the grapes. But the husbandmen, the farmers, beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the vineyard or that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, okay, when the audience, when the people heard it, they said, God forbid. No way that's going to happen. We wouldn't reject our Messiah. We're not going to face God's judgment like that. No way. And he beheld them and said, what is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests And the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. This is a parable about rejection. It's a a parable about the dangers of rejecting Christ. And what I want to do with this is look through this parable to see what attitudes sort of feed into this rejection of Jesus. What ingredients kind of go into the pot that then gets put onto simmer that results in this meal, this poisonous meal of rejecting Jesus. And as we do this, I want you to examine your heart to say, do I see any of these same attitudes in my own heart that leads to rejection of Jesus in different areas of my life? Now, ultimately, speaking to those who are not Christians, 
Are you rejecting Christ as your Savior? But even those who are Christians, who call on the name of Jesus, who have repented of your sins, are there ways that these attitudes are creeping up, cropping up in your life? The first dangerous attitude that leads to rejecting Christ is this danger of entitlement. This danger of entitlement. Verse 9 introduces the parable. There's a certain man that planted a vineyard and rented it to these farmers. This here is a display of God's grace to the nation of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy, over and over again, Moses says to the people, listen, God did not choose you because you were bigger, stronger, smarter, holier than anyone else. He chose you to be his people based on his grace and that alone. You've been chosen to be a kingdom of priests to represent God to the nations. And God puts them, he plants them like a vineyard right there in Palestine, right at the crossroads of the ancient world to be a light to the nations around them. And they're given the priesthood and they're given the the, the law and they're given this unique and special relationship with God. They are just lavished with spiritual privileges and, 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 and spiritual prestige to be the people of God. There would be this vineyard. Now, what's the point of planting a vineyard? What's the, plant, the point of planting, say, a garden? Some of you like to plant gardens. It's not for the thing to get overgrown with weeds and just be a big eyesore. No, the point of planting a garden or a vineyard is for there to be fruit on it, for you to get the result of it. In the same way, God planted Israel in the land of Palestine so that they would be fruitful, so they would produce righteousness and be a people for his name. Now, Jesus is not making this story up out of whole cloth. He is drawing on some Old Testament imagery, in particular, Isaiah chapter 7. If you just jump back in your Bibles to Isaiah 7, I want you to see how he is utilizing the Old Testament. This is important to get what he is doing. You say, on what basis are we saying this vineyard is, is Israel? Like, are we just reading that into the text? Jesus is pulling from a common image that the people would have recognized that vines represent Israel because of this parable that we get back in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel before they go into exile. He's pronouncing judgment on them. And he's going to compare Israel to this vineyard that God has planted that then in turn does not produce the fruit that it's supposed to. Isaiah chapter 5. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. So here's a vineyard that's not put somewhere where grapes don't grow, but it's put somewhere where grapes will grow. Ideal location. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So you've got a vineyard that's just ideally located. All the rocks are taken out, a fence put around it so you know little animals can't get in there and destroy the vines. Everything is set for this vineyard to be fruitful, to be productive, to be profitable. But notice the result. It brings forth wild grapes. It brings forth diseased grapes. It doesn't bring the fruit that it is meant to. Now here's the application. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between, betwixt me and my vineyard. Okay, who's to blame here? The farmer? Or the vineyard. The farmer did everything that farmers are meant to do to produce a a good crop. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? The answer is nothing. Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. Well, why did that happen? And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Almost similar language to what Jesus says. 
I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. Okay, this is a metaphor for God removing his protection from the nation of Israel. The Babylonians would come in, and they destroyed the nation in 586 B.C. I'll break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. So just judgment on the vineyard, judgment on the nation of Israel because they failed to be obedient to God. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So there's that explicit identification. The vineyard represents Israel, meant to be this people of God with this unique privilege, unique place, unique relationship. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment. Okay, that is justice. Okay, treating people right according to God's law. But behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. So the Old Testament, Israel's compared to a vineyard, and the grapes don't produce the way they ought. God judges the nation. So when Jesus uses this image of a vineyard, they know, okay, you're talking about the nation of Israel. God in his grace planted them and gave them this unique status, this unique position. He's the planter, Israel's the vineyard. So here in in Luke chapter 20, the vineyard is more specifically not just the nation of Israel, but the, the, the privileged place that that represents. Now in our story, We've got these tenant farmers. What would happen in Jesus' day? Landowners would own all this, all this land, and they would rent it out to people who would come, and they would farm it. And, and, and to pay their rent, they would just give a share, maybe a third or, or a quarter of the crops to the owner. And oftentimes, these landowners lived far away, these absentee landlords who would oversee it. That's the picture. He's drawing on something they would recognize. Now, what happens in our story? These renters begin to think of themselves as owners, Right? They're meant to be stewards of it. They're meant to sort of maintain it, recognizing, hey, someone else owns this. But they begin to treat it like their own. What was at one time a privilege that was recognized of we don't deserve this, it doesn't belong to us, begins to be this attitude of entitlement. This attitude of entitlement, here's what I mean by this. God owes us this privilege. God owes us this stature. God owes us his protection. God owes us something. And over time, that's what entered into the heart of the people of Israel. Now, this is ultimately about Israel, not about us, but I think we can learn something from this. Just like Israel was chosen by God's grace to have this position of privilege, we too have been chosen by God's grace to have a position of great privilege. We get to be the people of God. We get to bear the name of Christ. We have the hope of heaven. And if we're not careful, we begin to attribute that to our own worth and our own works rather than Christ's grace and his sacrifice on our behalf. We begin to develop an attitude of entitlement, of thinking God owes this to me. If he takes it away, I'm going to get upset. If if difficulty comes into my life, I'm going to blame God and shake my fist in his face. I think we are among the most spiritually privileged people in all of history. Unlike Israel, we're living under the new covenant, not the old covenant. We don't have to do sacrifices or go to the temple. We have this direct relationship with God through Christ, the spirit of God dwelling within us. Added to that, just the material prosperity that God has given to us. We're living in the richest nation in human history. We're living in more comfort and more safety than anyone else on the planet has ever enjoyed. Spiritually speaking, we have ready access to God's word. 
Most of you came in today carrying a copy of God's Word. Even if you didn't have a physical copy, you can pull it up on your phone. We've got Bibles and pew racks. Innumerable podcasts are out there that will explain the Bible to you. We have radio ministries, TV ministries, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to good Christian books. Yet how often do those Bibles sit on the shelf collecting dust? How often do those sermons and those podcasts go unlistened to? Those books go unread. We have all this privilege, and we don't use it. God gave Israel privilege. Why? So that they would be fruitful. God has given you and I immense privilege so that we would be fruitful for his honor and for his glory. Our privilege is not meant to be a grounds for boasting like, well, look at us. We're better than everyone else. No, 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 no. We're not. The only thing that differentiates me from someone else is God's grace that he has brought into my life. Our privilege is not a grounds for boasting, but a grounds for obedience to God's word for his glory. We've been given God's light, not to shine on our own accomplishments, but to spotlight God's. We are given a platform not to perform for the fame of men, but to proclaim the glories of the one who has saved us. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter will draw on Old Testament language to describe the new covenant people of God. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. That is to say, uh, a people who have been, been bought by God's grace. That you should show forth the excellency, uh, ex- excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is there an attitude of entitlement that's beginning to grow in your heart? That yes, you've experienced God grace, God's grace, you've received it, or maybe you just sort of benefit from it in the periphery of coming to church and enjoying sort of Christian morality, where you begin to think that it's owed to you. Grace is antithetical to any kind of payment, any kind of being owed to you, any kind of entitlement. Grace is free. If grace is deserved, it's no longer grace. Is there this attitude of entitlement? This began to happen in the nation of Israel, borne out by our parable. God gives us an immense privilege. This privilege, it can be a great blessing or a great danger, depending on how you use it. Which brings us to the second dangerous attitude that Israel displayed that fed into this rejection of Jesus. Verses 10 to 12, we see the danger of refusal. So the, 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 the owner, in the, in the due course of time, when harvest comes around, maybe after three or four years, because grapes don't produce in the first season, apparently. So he waits for the appropriate time to where, yep, the grapes should be producing now, and sends one of, one of his slaves to go collect the rent money. Totally appropriate. This is the contract. This is the agreement that there would be fruit that would be given. The, 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 the rent would be paid. So what happens in verse 10? He sent a servant to the, to the tenant farmers that they should give him from the fruit of the vineyard, But the tenant farmers beat him and sent him away empty. Won't give him any of it. We want it all for us. There's this greed. There's this this, this idea that because we're entitled, because we're keeping the vineyard, it's all ours. It belongs to us. They're thinking of themselves again as owners, not as stewards. They want it all for them, this greed for prestige and for power and for prosperity. So what what does the master do? Verse 11, he sent Another servant. He's not just going to roll over and give up his rights to the vineyard and be like, oh, well, they don't want to pay the rent. No, he's persistent. He sent another servant, and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. This represents God sending the prophets to Israel. 
right? God, God gives them this covenant. He brings them up out of Egypt. He plants them like a vine in the, the land of Israel. You can read about this in Psalm 80 that really breaks this down uh, even further. They're meant to produce fruit. They don't. They're living in rebellion against God. They begin to follow after idols. They begin to engage in immorality and injustice. And so God begins to send prophet after prophet after prophet. Now, what are the prophets doing? They're not giving any new information. They're simply saying, hey, guys, what God told you to do, the covenant that you entered into with him, you need to live that out. God is calling you to, 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 to obey and to submit to him and to walk in obedience and in faith. And so we get prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like Ezekiel, like Hosea, like Amos that come to the people begging them to turn back to God, to give him the fruit that he is due, the obedience that he demands. Israel's history is a tragic story of people rejecting God over and over again in spite, in spite of the privilege they have, in spite of the fact that they have Clear access to his truth. Sometimes we think that, well, if only people just had better information, then they would kind of get right with God. They would believe in Jesus. No, Israel's history is a case study in the fact that the problem is not with lack of information, but is with a depraved heart that is burnt, that is bent away from God, that is turned inward on ourselves. What is striking to me is the patience the persistence of the owner in the story, right? He doesn't just send one servant and they're like, nope, no paying rent. Okay, we're going to go just wipe these guys out. No, he comes three years in a row. He's like, hey, maybe it was a bad harvest the first year. We'll come again next year and we'll come again next year. What a picture of God's patience and his long suffering towards the people of Israel. Sometimes you read the Old Testament, you're like, man, it's just all this judgment. No, God gave them hundreds of years to repent and they still rejected him. He gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and they still rejected him. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 offers a warning to those who would spurn the long-suffering of God. It asks this question, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? God's long-suffering and his patience is not meant to give us a free pass to keep on sinning. Some people think, well, God hasn't judged me, so it must not be a big deal. I'm going to keep on sinning. No, God's patience and his long-suffering is meant to compel us to come to repentance. God bearing long with Israel was not him tolerating their sin because it wasn't a big deal, but it was God forbearing long with them, calling them to repent, giving them opportunity to repent over and over and over again. When I read this story in, in, in Luke chapter 20, I see here just an amazing reminder of God's patience with us over and over again. I see it a, a dark picture of the depravity of the human heart. We do not deserve anything from God. Well, let me rephrase that. The only thing we deserve from God is eternal damnation in hell. And yet God in his kindness gives us day after day, after day of life on this planet. And not only that, he caused the sun to rise this morning. Not just on good people, but on bad people as well. The sun rises on the just and on the unjust. And he causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. Totally undeserved. 
He gives food to people who don't deserve it. He gives life to people who don't deserve it. He gives families to people who don't deserve it. He gives health to people who don't deserve it. It's all his grace and his patience every single day being a gift of his mercy to people who do not deserve it. He's patient over and over and over again. And we who are his redeemed people, he continues to be patient with us. You do realize that the first time you and I sin as believers, we deserve to be damned to hell. Yet God in his love and his kindness says, no, Christ died in your place and his penalty pays that and I'm going to keep you and preserve you in, the, in my right hand. My spirit will intercede. The son will plead our case and God keeps us by his power and by his love and is patient with us and will never cast us aside as his people. He'll never, he'll never say, ah, that's just one thing too many. No, 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 he is patient and long-suffering. But for those who do not know Jesus Christ, one day his patience will come to an end. One day. I've heard it illustrated this way. With one hand, God restrains his wrath against our sin. And with the other hand, he extends mercy and grace. But one day, both hands will drop. One day, there will be no more long-suffering and restraining of his wrath. And you will face the full brunt of God's wrath. If you do not know Christ. Here's my point. God grants opportunities. Do not waste them. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. That's the lesson of Israel's history. If you hear his voice, you hear the call of repentance. Don't harden your heart. Don't refuse. Because here's what happens. You refuse one time, it becomes so much easier to refuse a second time. And to refuse a third time. Did you notice with these three servants, their treatment of them got worse and worse? The first one, they just kind of beat up and sent home, kind of, let's send a message to the owner that we're not going to respect his rights. The second one, they beat up and they dishonored. That's a big deal in the ancient world. In a shame honor society, they dishonor him, they mistreat him, and they, they fling him out of the vineyard. And then the third one, they give him a wound, so he's coming home with a, with a permanent wound from his mistreatment. Sin escalates. Refusal becomes more entrenched. It's like concrete. The longer it goes, the harder it becomes. You say, I'm going to just refuse God in this little area. It becomes easier to refuse God in other areas. You refuse the gospel saying no, and every time you say no, it becomes easier to say no. There's this danger of refusal. There's a danger here in just delaying to obey God, to delay repenting and trusting Christ. You're here today. You know, I'm trusting in my own merits to get me to heaven. I think I'm cool with God, but... Deep down, I know that's not the truth. I know deep down that it's only through Christ and him alone, and I've never been born again. But Sunday after Sunday, you delay doing anything about it. Or, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I need to profess my faith in the waters of baptism. You say, I'm going to just delay. I'm going to delay doing that. Or there's that broken friendship that you know you need to repair, but you delay, you delay, and you delay, and it becomes harder and harder to repair. You delay in killing that persistent pet sin that you have. You delay in reaching out to others and to develop discipling relationships. You delay to develop spiritual disciplines. Delay gathering with God's people. Instead, pursue selfishness. Instead, say, the vineyard is mine and I'm going to do what I want with it. That's a dangerous place to be. But there's a third danger. The climax of the story, the owner sends his own son and they murder him. 
And in a sense, it's a continuation of he sends, you know, sends the three servants, and then sort of the last message to them is the sending of the son. But there's real blindness here. Uh, you, you, we read the story, and they're like, hey, we'll kill the son, and we'll take the vineyard, and we kind of are left scratching our heads to be like, I don't really know how that works. Right? How, how, how's that where you kill the son and you get the, the vineyard? It doesn't make any sense. There's a whole bunch of assumptions that they are making that don't make any sense to our ears and to our eyes. Shows the blindness of their hearts. So notice verse 13. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? There's some deliberations going on. I will send my beloved son. Maybe they will reverence him when they see him. Obvious reference to Jesus. Luke has used that language of the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That beloved son, that language in Luke refers to, to Jesus. It implies that this son is the only son that the owner has. He's his sole heir. He's his sole son. He's the, the, the only one that he has. And sending him is designed to say, okay, you wouldn't listen to the servants, but my own son comes as my representative, as the one who has my authority coming to my vineyard. It may be that they will hear him, that they will reverence him. Now, I want you to understand just how surprising this is. Everyone listening to the story would not expect this. Rather... They would expect the owner to go ahead and send in the troops and go after the, the landowners, take legal action against them, expel them, evict them. They've already proven three times that they're trying to steal the vineyard from the owner. But what mercy and what grace this is to send the only son to some obviously murderous tenant farmers. It doesn't make any sense. No human landowner would do this. It is this beyond the scope of any kind of human love. We, we don't have a category for someone sending in their heir and their only son to appeal to murderous rebel, rebels knowing that they will kill him. And the reason this doesn't make any sense to us is it doesn't depict human love. It depicts divine love. God's love is beyond measure. He shows mercy even when wrath is fully deserved. He exudes love even to those who hate him. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his beloved son. That whosoever, even rebels, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a portrait of, of God's infinite love. Now, you would think that this kind of display of love and mercy would, would break through the hard-heartedness, but precisely the opposite happens. The father's plan is met by the, the, the farmer's plot. Verse 14, notice their plot. When they saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. They're like... They see him coming over the horizon. By the way, the language is very similar to the Joseph story. When his brothers see him, they come up with their plan to, to get rid of him. The son is on his way. The son is coming. When they see him approaching, his status does not lead them to repentance. It leads them to rage. And they don't kill him in spite of his status. They kill him because of his status. In the same way, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rulers of the people are trying to get rid of Jesus. Not because they're like, Man, we don't know who he is, and this doesn't make any sense. No, because they hear him claim to be Messiah, and they know that he is Messiah, and they know that if he is Messiah, the game's up, and their authority and their little party is over. 
they recognize the son as the heir. Well, they're, they're losing their jobs. They're losing their control of the vineyard. Their idea seems to be this. Well, if the son is showing up, dad must have died. If we kill the son, because there's only one son, there will be no legal owner to the land, and if we just stay here long enough, the title will pass to us. That's their plan. Now, big assumption they get wrong here. The, the owner has not died, so the story's not going to end with killing the son. And they're, 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 the, the way they see this playing out legally is, is very messy at best. It just reveals the blindness. It is man's blind blindness caused by sin that leads him to reject Jesus Christ. It's blindness. This, this inability to see the majesty and the glory and the beauty of Jesus in our sin. In John 3, after John 3, 16, John goes on to write this. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world. Okay, who's the light? It's Jesus. Okay, so Jesus has come into the world. And men loved what? Darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's not just describing a few people who are like really, really bad. They love darkness rather than light. That's all of us. We love darkness rather than light because we love our sin more than we love Jesus. And this leads to this rejection of the son, this murder of the son. Sin is not only rebellion against God, it is also blindness. And it leads to greater and greater blindness. And here's the thing about blindness. The blindness of sin is we become blind to the fact that we are blind. We think, ah, man, I've got this all figured out. I can see everything going on in my life. I understand, like, myself really, really well, when in reality we don't. We don't see ourselves as God sees us. We don't see the proclivities of our heart like God sees them. We don't see our bent away to to, to evil the way God sees it. We don't see the sinful motives that that, that come in and are, are there and even the good things that we do. But God does. Even as Christians, we need to be on guard against the blind spots in our lives. You've got those mirrors on your car, you know, that like, are to, if there's someone who's sort of right there in the lane, and you change lanes, and boom, you take out their headlight. You get those blind spot mirrors. You know, God has designed blind spot mirrors for the Christian life. And you know what it is? The blind spot mirror that God has designed is Christian fellowship. Now, speaking of believers, how how do we, you know, our eyes have been opened by the gospel, by the grace of Jesus Christ. But even with our eyes open, there are still areas in our lives that we're sort of blind to the flaws and the failings and the places where we uh, we don't, we're not growing the way we ought to. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort, what, one another daily. That's why it's not good enough just to come to church, listen to a sermon, and leave. We need to be exhorting one another daily. Be so involved in one another's lives. Have relationships that are so strong and so open and so honest that another Christian could come to you and say, Hey, I I love you, brother. I'm just noticing there's this drifting going on in your life. I'm noticing, I don't know if you pick up on it, but there's this pride that's beginning to spring up in your heart, and I love you enough to, 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 to call this out. That sounds harsh. I don't think I want that. I don't want that kind of vulnerability. The Bible requires it, and it is actually a gift of God's grace in the lives of Christians to help us see those blind spots in one another's hearts, one another's lives. But this is how sin works. They go from rejecting a servant to murdering the son. Sin always escalates. We trick ourselves into thinking, well, I'm going to do this one sin, and then it's going to stop right here. 
But you know, to, 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 to cover that up, you've got to lie, you've got to deceive, and there's a bunch of other sins that go along to feed that one sin. And before you know it, it has ballooned into something far greater than you ever imagined. Sin always escalates. One sin always leads to another. Sin always leads to deception and to greater blindness. Beating led to wounding, led to murder. Presumption led to greed, leading to outright rebellion and the rejection of the owner's son. People of Israel blinded themselves by their repeated rejection of God's overtures to them, leading them to reject the offer of the Son, which was God's final word to them. Hebrews 1 says, God in sundry times and diverse manners, manners spoke unto, the, unto us by the prophets. It's okay, God spoke by the prophets, and then it says, He's in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. There's something qualitatively differently. God's spoken through the prophets, the Old Testament, but the sending of his son is something in a class of its own. God's final word to mankind is Jesus Christ calling them to repentance. So there's a danger of blindness. Is there blindness in your life? Or do you look at your life and say, everything's great? Chances are, if you think everything's great in your life, you're blind. And you need someone else to come in and to speak into your life and help you see those places where everything's not great in your life. It can lead to rejecting God's son. So everything in the story is built to this point. The sending of the servants representing the prophets. The repeated entreaties. They have all led to a mutilated corpse outside the vineyard's walls. Picturing, of course, the fact that Christ would be crucified outside of Jerusalem just a few days after he spoke this. The owner's love for these wicked farmers is staggering, and the son's murder is utterly appalling, but the story does not stop there. The end of verse 15, Jesus asks a question. What, therefore, shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? This, this is not going to stand. He's, he's not going to just allow his son to be murdered and do nothing. That would be weakness. That would be shameful in the worst kind of way. What, what is the owner going to do about this? Jesus answers the question. He shall come and destroy these tenant farmers, these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, God forbid, that's never going to happen. May it never be. That statement they make in verse 16, Jesus is like very clearly saying, the nation rejects their Messiah. They kill God's son. They're going to be destroyed. Okay, we talked about this a few weeks ago when, when the Romans came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. The vineyard, okay, the privileges of representing God to the world are going to be given to other people. That's us, the church of Jesus Christ. You can read about this in Romans 11, that Israel is broken off of the tree, and other branches are grafted, and that's us. This is pretty sweet. God, in, even in judging Israel, expands the circle of grace to where Jews, Gentiles, people of every nation, tribe, and tongue who believe in Jesus are made part of the church, part of the people of God part of this new priesthood, this new temple, this new nation that God is making that transcends all national identities. Okay, he said, that's going to happen. You're going to reject the Messiah. You're going to be judged. The vineyard's going to go to other people, which, by the way, is a big part of Luke's message is the inclusion of the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And their response is, God forbid. Now, what are they denying? They're denying a couple of things. Number one, there's no way that we would reject our Messiah like that. No way. We've been looking for him. We've been waiting for him. The other thing is, there's no way that God would do that. This is what I'm going to call the danger of presumption. And here's what I mean by this. This presumption that God would never judge me. That's a dangerous place to be. To think, 
God won't judge me. God won't deal with my sin. No way. No way. That's where the nation of Israel got. They were so, back to the entitlement idea, so secure in this notion that we're God's people. Just because we're children of Abraham, we're good to go. It doesn't matter how we live. That's where they got. Remember what John the Baptist said, God's able with stones to raise up children to Abraham. Don't, don't rest in your heritage or your ethnicity to save you. This presumption to say we are beyond the reach of God's judgment. So they mean a couple of things when they say God forbid. They're saying, not us. We would never do that. That's, we, would, we would never reject our Messiah. This word reveals their presumption. Presuming God would never judge us. They presume that we would never reject our Messiah like that. And they're offended by the very insinuation. Many, many millions of people in churches today presume that they will never face God's judgment because, well, God just likes me. Or I lead a moral life. I've I've not robbed anyone, murdered anyone. I'm a good neighbor. I donate my time to good community organizations. I'm involved in charity. I'm obviously a good person. God would never judge me. Similar idea. We're God's people. We're Israel. We got the temple. God would never judge us. In Romans 11, Paul is making, having a similar conversation as Jesus is having. He's talking about God's plans for the nations. He's talking about what God is going to do in regards to Israel. And he says, because Israel rejected their Messiah, they're set aside. God is now saving Gentiles. And then in verse 20, he says, because of unbelief, they were broken off. Israel was broken off because they didn't believe in their Messiah. And thou standest by faith. Now, what's your response going to be? Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. Now, he's not talking about individual Christians like, well, you could lose your salvation. He's talking about groups. Just as Israel as a group began to think, God would never judge us. Listen, we as Christians, as churches, can begin to think, We're sort of too big to fail. Remember that phrase from the financial crisis, like this bank is too big to fail, we better bail it out. We begin to think we're sort of too essential to the purposes of God for God to set aside us. That's exactly the attitude that Israel had. He says, be careful of having that kind of conceited, presumptuous attitude. You see, we can look at Israel's story and say, yeah, they got what was coming to them. They rejected their Messiah, but praise God that will never happen to us. Paul's saying in Romans 11, be careful. God does not need Cloverleaf Baptist Church. He doesn't. He's able to raise up a new church just like that. He's able to start new organizations just like that. No organization, no institution is essential to the plans of God. And God is quite capable of of judging, beginning at the house of God. Now, the other way that they are presumptuous is not just saying, not us, it would never happen to us, we're special. But one way that many people today are presumptuous when it comes to God's judgment is saying, not God. So whereas the first statement says, God would never judge me, the second statement is, God would never judge. Oh, we believe in a God of love and and tolerance and kindness. He wouldn't judge anyone. A God of mercy and and kindness would never send anybody to to eternal damnation and, and hell. 
People today want to refine, redefine God to make him a God of love without wrath, mercy without justice, and heaven without hell. But in the final estimation, you don't actually want a God like that. In fact, it would be morally outrageous to our sense of justice to have a God who never judges sin. We all want a God who judges sin as long as it's not our sin. Right? If it's the sin of the person who has wronged me, the sin of, the, of people who, who hurt, hurt other people out there in the world, like, yeah, I judge them, but don't judge me. So you redefine God and say he's a God of love. My friend, do not presume that you are beyond the reach of God's long arm of justice. Do not presume that the measuring stick applied to others will somehow be shortened for you. Do not presume that you are too big to fail or too important to be judged. If God judged Israel, he can judge anyone. It is an exhibit of his justice. Spiritual danger of presumption of, of denying that God, no way, God won't judge. He won't give the vineyard to someone else. We're special. Presumption. Is there presumption in your heart? Even as a Christian, even as a born-again believer, it can begin to creep up and the, the weeds of presumption can begin to grow in the garden of our hearts. Are, are those weeds beginning to grow? Ah, yeah, I'm good. You know, there's sin, but God, God's not going not to chasten me for that. Now, listen, let me be very careful here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will never, ever, ever face the wrath of God. Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You're a believer in Jesus. You're not going to face his wrath. You're not going to face hell. You're not going to go to purgatory. But the Bible does say that those who are God's children, he will chase them. Right? A loving parent will discipline, will spank, will correct their children. God will do that in the lives of his people. Don't think that, oh, I'm in Christ. Everything's good to go. I can just sort of sin willy-nilly and never face God's displeasure. You will face the chastening of God. You can lose privilege. You can lose influence like Israel did. The final danger, and I'm going to call this the danger of delusion. Jesus now in verse 17 says, and he beheld them. Dramatic pause as he looks every single person in the eye. Because they're denying what he just said. There's no way that's going to happen. And he asks a question, how then does Psalm 118, verse 22, get fulfilled? How does the prophecy that the stone which the builders rejected is made the head of the corner? Y'all are saying you wouldn't reject the Messiah. Well, there's a prophecy that says you will. The builders, representing the, the, the leaders of the people, the ones who should be leading in the construction effort, so to speak. They've rejected the stone. Chuck it, chuck it over the edge. Chuck it over the cliff. We're not going to use that rock in building this temple. Okay, the stone which the builders rejected, that same stone becomes the chief cornerstone. The rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. He's saying there's a prophecy that Messiah will be rejected and then be exalted. How does that happen? He asks. Jesus compares himself to this cornerstone. He's going to be rejected, but he's going to be made the chief cornerstone in this new temple that God is going to build. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church of Jesus Christ is a temple built on the cornerstone who's Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10 says there's no other foundation but Christ. He's the foundation of the church. He's the cornerstone of the new covenant temple, the new covenant people of God. Exalted, rejected, murdered, crucified, 
And he rises again the third day victorious over sin. He rises again to rule over his church. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. The one, the same one who is rejected is resurrected. The same one who is set aside becomes the prominent cornerstone. He's exalted. Now here's the delusion. They're thinking that they can somehow thwart the prophecies of God. They're thinking they can somehow get past the plan of God, that they can thwart God's sovereignty. That's insanity. To think, I'm going to go against God's plan and somehow win. <laughs> Psalm 2, just jot that reference down, as a commentary on this very type of thinking. People who say, let's cast God off, let's throw his anointed out. And then the, the, the text says, he that dwells in heaven will laugh. He's going to win. He's going to have the final word in the end. So verse 18 changes the, the image from a cornerstone to a crushing stone. Whoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. It all depends on your relationship to that, that same stone. The same stone that makes an awesome cornerstone is really bad if it falls on you. Now there's a, a, a Hebrew midrash basically an interpretation on Esther 3.6 that says, if the pot falls, or if the stone falls on the pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. So you think about a clay pot, you drop it out of a second story window onto a big rock, it's going to shatter. If you drop the rock on top of it, it's going to shatter. Either way, it's game over for the pot. Jesus is laying a choice out. He's saying, this stone can be the cornerstone of your life. Or it will be the crushing stone that will pulverize you in judgment. It all depends on your relationship to that stone. The same cinder block that makes a great brick in the wall hurts like the dickens if you drop it on your toe. The same Jesus who can be Savior and Lord of your life, the one that you build your life upon, the one you build your life around, will also be the judge on that final day, depending on your relationship to him. He is the divine divider. He's the one who causes the, the rise and the fall of many in Israel, the one who brings salvation or judgment, depending on your orientation, your relationship to him. Verse 19, we see the chief priests and the scribes. Basically, here's think a big hunk of granite, and they're thinking, okay, we heard what you said, but we're going to try and charge headfirst into that and see if we win. Man versus granite, who's going to win? Right? Sanhedrin versus Jesus, who's going to win? Jesus is going to win. And that following Sunday would prove it. He rose again from the dead, defeating and thwarting all of their plans and coming out victorious and has ascended to the right hand of God. Now, we're faced with the same decision. Will you make Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Will you trust in him as your savior because he died in your place? Or will you try building on your own cornerstone, your own works, your own efforts, your own ideas, your own wisdom? As Christians, are you building your life on Jesus. And I, and I mean more than just sort of in a cliche kind of way. Is he the foundation for your view of reality? Is he the foundation for the decisions you make? Is he the one determining how your family operates? There's nothing more dangerous than rejecting Christ. Than walking out of a gospel sermon being like, I'm going to try and do it my own way. It's eternally perilous. Infinitely more dangerous than, than riding around without a seatbelt. Right? Infinitely more dangerous than any risk you would take is trying to live without Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I plead with you to run to Jesus today in repentance and faith. That's it. Like, come to Jesus and him alone and say, I can't save myself. I'm throwing myself on you. I'm recognizing you as the Lord and master and king and owner of the vineyard. 
as Christians. We've got to fight these same five attitudes that continue to pop up in our lives. You fight entitlement with a regular rehearsal of the gospel. I can't save myself. Jesus can. I'm nothing without him. I don't deserve any of this. You fight refusal with obedience. When he commands something, you do it. Just make that the habit. You fight blindness with fellowship. The blindness, the blind spots, I'm going to get with other Christians. You find presumption with the truth of Scripture. Just let that determine your mind so you don't determine what you think so you don't become presumptuous. And you fight delusion with submission. So is Christ your cornerstone or is Christ 